Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. As I told you before, we've teamed up with Doximity to connect you with program directors, residents from top programs to help you navigate your specialty choice and the residency process as a whole. You should check out the Residency Navigator at residency.doximity.com to get the most transparent and useful advice on programs you're considering. Doximity is the leading professional network for doctors. Match smarter with Doximity's Residency Navigator, residency.doximity.com. And in conjunction with the Match Smarter series, Doximity is giving away a $100 Amazon gift card. You can complete your Doximity profile, and if you do so by December 30th, 2016, you will be entered to win that $100 Amazon gift card. Go to docs, that's D-O-X dot I-M slash inside the boards or Grab the link from today's show notes page. Great show planned for you today. I've got an interview with Ned Morris, who's a writer and psychiatry resident, uh, who's going to offer some advice on applying to psychiatry residency programs, as well as some perspectives on psychiatry as a specialty. This is part of our Match Smarter series in conjunction with Doximity. But before going into that, can I just say how perfect that intro music is? I actually found a song that mentions in the lyrics cortisol and serotonin, Uh, as the perfect intro to the concepts we're going to be discussing today. Uh, The tune is by the band The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. Uh, You can get more details on that at the end of today's episode. Uh, Before we launch into the interview, though, I wanted to go over a few high-yield psych questions for your uh, psychiatry learning pleasure. Most of these are shelf exam slash step two kind of level material. Uh, And they're brought to you by Osmosis, the personalized medical school learning platform that brings together flashcards, practice questions, articles, and videos that you can synchronize with your medical school curriculum to help you save time and increase your efficiency in study by learning what you need to know in classes, preclinically, or on the wards during third and fourth year at the same time you're studying for your shelf or USMLE or Comlex exams. Plus, Osmosis has a firm commitment to free open access medical education, an idea that uh, we here at Inside the Boards are also committed to. So they are well worth checking out. They've been called the Netflix of medical education. And although there is a premium version, you can get access to hundreds of their free videos on various topics, as well as a library of high-quality, free, board-style practice questions. Head over to open.osmosis.org or osmosis.org to learn more. All right, first question. A 44-year-old man is brought to the hospital because he was found wandering the streets of the city. He does not know his name, location, or where he is going. The police found him wandering with a worn-out suit and a loose tie around his neck with a battered suitcase. 
He stares blankly in response to questions. He appears amused by the clouds in the sky and the cars driving by. A search through his suitcase reveals that he is on a business trip from another country. Physical examination is unremarkable. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Acute stress disorder. B. Depersonalization disorder. C. Dissociative amnesia. D. Dissociative fugue. Or E. Dissociative identity disorder. And I'll give a short pause so that you can pause the podcast to think about these questions as we go through them. And the answer is D. Dissociative fugue. I wanted to look at this question just to kind of warm you up. Uh, The difficulty with psychiatry questions a lot of people find is the fact that so many of the diagnoses that are presented as distractors within uh, psych board exam style questions is that the presentations overlap so greatly. And it's often the absence of one element or the presence of one element that secures the diagnosis within the vignette. So more than other specialties or um, topics, I would say, in psychiatry, you really want to pay attention to every detail within the vignette. And of course, to some extent, that goes without saying for whatever you're studying. But if you're taking a surgery shelf and you see a vignette that describes hypotension, jugular venous distension, and muffled heart sounds, you know this is a question about Beck's triad, uh, which is associated with cardiac tamponade. It's kind of the the telltale pathognomonic set of findings that indicate cardiac tamponade. So if they mention medications and family history and social history and whatnot, uh, it may be less important in a vignette that describes hypotension, JVD, and muffled heart sounds if they're asking about diagnosis, because you know it's going to be about cardiac tamponade. It is a little bit different with psychiatry. And actually, full disclosure, psychiatry was my worst shelf exam. Uh, Why? Probably because I spent so much time reading Kaplan and Sadek's synopsis of psychiatry. And go figure, reading a textbook might give a lot of knowledge, but it does not necessarily help with shelf examinations. Uh, It may help with life, that is for sure. But when it comes to exams, you need a different strategy. And you'll hear me say or write uh, often, questions, questions, questions are the key to success on a medical board exam. At any rate, back to dissociative fugue. So fugue is a rare psychiatric disorder that's characterized by uh, reversible amnesia of personal identity, including memories, personality, and other identifying characteristics of individuality, you know, like birthday, name, etc. This form of amnesia is specifically coupled with travel to new surroundings. So the patient will exhibit denial of all memory of his or her whereabouts during the period of wandering. And it's a subtype of dissociative amnesia as categorized in the DSM-5. And it's a classic presentation on your psychiatry shelf exam or step two, where you have a patient who has been discovered in some sort of wandering state with amnesia of some smattering of personal details like name, place of birth. In the vignette, somehow they will reveal that he's from, or she, could be a she, I'm just saying, uh, is from another country or some other locale and just ended up winding up, wandering the streets in some new location and is then brought to the hospital for evaluation. When it comes to the vignette, the important thing to notice here to get this question correct is the fact that this person is from another country and is found wandering in some new city without recollection of his name, his location, or his intended destination. Found wandering in some new random location with some amnesia? Think dissociative fugue. However, the distractors do have overlapping presentations. So A was acute stress disorder. So acute and post-traumatic stress can lead to dissociative symptoms. 
However, you would expect to find some acute stressor or inciting event, something traumatic, right? That would be an essential requirement for a vignette to include if the answer was going to be acute stress disorder. We have no information about witnessing or being involved in some acutely stressful, life-threatening situation. Therefore, we can rule out acute stress disorder as an answer. B was depersonalization disorder. Uh, DPD is a mental disorder in which the patient is affected by persistent or recurrent feelings of depersonalization, that sense that I am not real, or derealization, that sense that the world around the person is somehow unreal. Depersonalization is a symptom, though, often featured in anxiety disorders like panic disorder or generalized anxiety disorder. But on the boards, you'd expect some report from the patient about an altered perception or experience of the world. So we can rule that out based on the absence of the patient's kind of subjective feelings of being divorced from their own self or their sense of not belonging to the world. So there's none of this this self-recognition. Choice C was dissociative amnesia. And while in DSM-5, dissociative fugue is now subsumed under dissociative amnesia, and to some extent these terms can be used interchangeably, on the boards, if you were presented with the options of choosing between as answer choices, dissociative amnesia and dissociative fugue. If travel to a new place is a big part of that vignette, choose fugue. Otherwise, it's probably helpful to remember that you may end up seeing dissociative fugue presented with the same vignette, but the answer choice being dissociative amnesia. All right, let's move on. So dissociative identity disorder, also called multiple personality disorder, is characterized by two or more distinct and relatively enduring identities or dissociated personality states that alternately control a person's behavior. Since this particular 44-year-old man does not present as having two separate identities, we can rule that out. So take home, dissociative fugue, amnesia regarding autobiographical content, in the setting of travel to a distant place with no recognition of how one got there, dissociative fugue. Moving on. A 24-year-old man comes to the clinic because of mood changes that his mother was concerned about. He was on a date at a restaurant when a drive-by shooting occurred outside the front door. For the next three weeks, he could not get the scene out of his mind with random flashbacks to the noises of the gunshots ringing in his head. He often rushed to the window whenever he heard noise outside. However, his mother would deny hearing anything. He has nightmares often and began to avoid the restaurant and the young woman he had taken out on that date. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Acute stress disorder. B. Brief psychotic disorder. C. Delusional disorder. D. Panic disorder. Or E. Post-traumatic stress disorder. And the answer is A, acute stress disorder. So acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder present with similar and overlapping symptoms in response to a past traumatic event. This particular question highlights one of those other important things that you need to know for psychiatry board exams, and that is the timeline in which symptoms present can often make the difference between one diagnosis and the other, or put in more practical terms, scoring the point and not scoring the point for that question. So the symptoms in ASD or PTSD are flashbacks and uh, delusions that can cause a patient to essentially re-experience past traumatic events. Patients can experience hyperautonomia, where they have difficulty falling asleep, they're irritable, they're extremely vigilant, uh, that is, hearing any noise as uh, perhaps the prelude to another drive-by shooting and checking the windows, exaggerated startle responses. These are all things that often feature into the vignettes describing patients with these diagnoses. Um, but they also may experience or show symptoms of avoidance in an attempt to not or to avoid re-experiencing the trauma. So for this case, the patient is adamant about avoiding the restaurant 
and the person he was with, the key differentiating factor between acute stress disorder and PTSD is solely time. Acute stress disorder is diagnosed if the duration of symptoms has been less than a month. If the symptoms last longer than a month, then it's known as PTSD. It's as simple as that. Let's look at the distractors now. So B, brief psychotic disorder. Although brief psychotic disorder is characterized by lasting less than a month, right? There's that important time factor. It is marked by symptoms of essentially schizophrenia with delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, uh, social dysfunction, but it occurs less than one month in duration. So if you have schizophrenia, essentially somebody um, who presents with uh, psychotic symptoms that meet the criteria for schizophrenia, and the symptoms have occurred for less than a month, the diagnosis on the boards is going to be brief psychotic disorder. If the symptoms are present from one month to six months, the diagnosis is schizophreniform disorder. And if it's greater than six months, the diagnosis is schizophrenia. Answer choice C was delusional disorder. Although the patient in this vignette is experiencing delusions, delusional disorder is diagnosed according to DSM-5 as the presence of delusions for longer than a month. The key differentiating factor, though, between delusional disorder itself and PTSD would be in the latter, there's a clear connection to a past significant traumatic experience. D, panic disorder. Panic disorder is characterized by recurrent sudden panic attacks, uh, which are discrete episodes of intense fear discomfort with similarly strong sympathetic symptoms like sweating, chest pain, nausea, shortness of breath, palpitations. Patients with acute stress disorder or PTSD can often have some of these symptoms, but on the boards, you would distinguish them by noting a clear connection to a past trauma, think acute stress disorder or PTSD, no clear association between a past significant trauma and the hyperarousal or hyperautonomic symptoms with recurrent episodes of sudden, intense, sympathetic symptoms. That's panic disorder. E was post-traumatic stress disorder. And like I said before, essentially acute stress disorder is PTSD when the symptoms have occurred for less than one month. All right, next. A 45-year-old retail clerk comes to the clinic for an evaluation of depression. She claims that since high school, she has never felt happy because she considers herself to be an outcast. Her constantly depressed mood is accompanied by fatigue, lack of interest, difficulty concentrating, and pessimism. She is convinced that all of her high school classmates disliked her, and she has a hard time finding friends. Her only good time is when she is at home alone, listening to music, watching her favorite show on TV, or playing games on the internet. During the past years, she's tried several therapies to help her get over her shyness and depression. She denies agoraphobia, public anxiety, or panic attacks. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Adjustment disorder. B. Avoidant personality disorder. C. Schizoid personality disorder. D. Schizotypal personality disorder. Or E. Social phobia. And the answer is B, avoidant personality disorder. So avoidant personality disorder is characterized by fear of rejection, staying away from social situations, and heightened sensitivity to negative criticism. This is one of those cluster C personality disorders, which encompass those personality disorders defined by anxiety or fear. There's the classic uh, mnemonic for remembering the cluster A versus B versus C personality disorders. Cluster A are the weird ones, the paranoid, schizoid, schizotypal. B are the wild ones, histrionic, narcissistic, borderline, antisocial, and C are the worried ones. Weird, wild, and worried, the three W's. Cluster C personality disorders are avoidant, dependent, and obsessive-compulsive. 
cluster C personality disorders often co-occur with uh, anxiety disorders themselves. Though the patient here feels constantly depressed, she does try to seek treatment, but unsuccessfully. And it's her pervasive pattern of social avoidance, pessimism, and lack of close peer relationships that are key to making the diagnosis over and above the other distractors here. Patients with avoidant personality, especially on board exams, show an extreme sensitivity to rejection, which leads to social withdrawal. They're not antisocial, but shy and desire companionship, but they're almost too anxious or fearful to pursue it. So looking at the distractors, A was adjustment disorder. With an adjustment disorder, you would expect some particular trigger or situation to be found such that the patient would be adjusting to it, right? If the patient had just moved to a new high school and started experiencing uh, symptoms of depression, uh, shyness, fatigue, lack of interest, a stronger case could be made that her diagnosis was in fact an adjustment disorder. The key is that in an adjustment disorder, there is some stressor that is the clear cause of the patient's symptoms or the precipitating factor for a patient's symptoms, like a marital conflict or financial conflict, health issues, personal tragedies undergone changing to a new school for adolescents. And important things to note for the boards regarding adjustment disorders, which can be characterized by depressed mood, anxious mood, mixed anxiety and depressed mood, disturbance of conduct, mixed disturbance of emotions and conduct, or as an unspecified adjustment disorder. With adjustment disorders, the symptoms have to develop in response to an identifiable stressor within three months of the onset of that stressor. And like many psychiatric disorders, the stress-related disturbance cannot meet the criteria for another mental health condition or be simply the exacerbation of a pre-existing mental disorder. And finally, key factor here after the termination of the stressor, say somebody has significant financial worries that cause them or bring out depressive symptoms, if they suddenly win the lottery and their financial situation improves, the symptoms that were the result of the stressor must not occur for any longer than six months once that stressor is terminated. So this patient's 45 and She's been claiming to have these sorts of problems since high school. And since she is no longer in high school, we hope we can rule out adjustment disorder. Schizoid personality disorder is kind of on the opposite side of an avoidant personality. These individuals do not have strong desires for affection or acceptance. They essentially are indifferent to that. They want to be left alone. This patient expresses a desire for finding friends, but her fear of rejection prevents her from doing so. So avoidant personality fits better as an answer. Social phobia, which is choice E, is an irrational fear of social or performance situations like public speaking or eating in public. Social phobias are anxieties concerning socially identifiable situations, not relationships in general. So this vignette specifically said that the patient denies agoraphobia, public anxiety, or panic attacks. So that denial of public anxiety, maybe every time she goes to some social function, she experiences intense anxiety or fear um, such that she starts avoiding that particular type of situation, say office, Christmas parties. But she still has friends, and she still has good relationships. Social phobia would be a... a more appropriate diagnosis under those conditions. Oh, and I forgot choice D, which was schizotypal personality disorder. So this is the one uh, that everyone loves. The uh, schizotypal person has a strikingly odd or strange behavior with magical thinking, peculiar ideas, and ideas of reference, illusions, or derealization. And as a reminder, ideas of reference or delusions of reference describe the phenomenon of an individual experiencing, or rather, I guess, interpreting 
uh, events or coincidences as having strong personal implications. Or, it has been well said, the notion that everything one perceives in the world relates to one's own destiny. So if I normally go buy a newspaper at the newsstand every morning, and then one day I skip it, and on that day so-and-so is elected president, and I'm convinced in some sense that my failure to buy the newspaper that day caused the outcome of the election— uh, that would be an idea of reference. So those aren't described in this vignette, so we can rule that uh, particular answer choice out. And last for today, a 34-year-old man is found agitated and combative in an urban neighborhood. He is cursing at drivers that pass by and assaulting anyone that walks by. The police arrive on site and try to calm the man, but he keeps repeating that he is a black belt ninja and he has snakes crawling all over him and will take anyone down that chooses to challenge him. He is masked and costumed as such. Backup is called immediately as the man goes inside his home and pulls out a shotgun. The scene is tense and many police officers are on scene. They try to get close to handcuff him, but he begins swinging wildly. Rubber bullets bounce off him. When they finally pummel him to the ground, he keeps getting up despite being shot and tasered. In the gurney, he is still sitting up cursing everyone. On physical exam, he's briefly found to have rotatory nystagmus and dilated pupils. Medics are unable to examine him further due to his aggression. Which substance is the most likely etiology? A. Fencyclidine, PCP. B. Alcohol. C. Lysergic acid, LSD. D. Cocaine. Or E. Marijuana. And the answer is... A, PCP, fencyclidine. So I included this one just because on the boards, if you see some violent patient being brought in to the ER or encountered in public, think PCP. The kind of classic presentation is a violent patient with tactile hallucinations, delusions, and an incredibly high tolerance to pain. Fencyclidine is a dissociative hallucinogenic drug that is an NMDA antagonist and a dopamine agonist. Other clinical kind of findings include agitation, depersonalization, hallucinations, impaired judgment, impaired memory, combativeness, ataxia, dysarthria, hypertension, tachycardia, and muscle rigidity. This is important. So PCP is the only illicit drug that causes vertical nystagmus, but you can also see horizontal or rotatory nystagmus in PCP intoxication. And importantly, high doses can cause severe hypertension, seizures, or life-threatening hyperthermia. You treat PCP intoxication with benzos and antipsychotics to control the psychomotor agitation and psychotic symptoms. So let's go through the other choices. Alcohol. Excessive consumption of alcohol leads to symptoms like incoherent speech, disinhibition, staggering gait, and confusion when faced with tasks requiring thinking, as well as emotional lability. Yes, people who are intoxicated can get aggressive, but on the boards, somebody who is combative has an increased pain threshold and tactile hallucinations think PCP. Actually, pretty much any time the police are involved in taking uh, a patient down due to combativeness, you should at least really consider PCP as the diagnosis. Alcohol intoxication can cause a vertical downbeating nystagmus, but of the illicit drugs, PCP is the only one that's going to cause a vertical nystagmus. LSD, lysergic acid, LSD causes perceptual hallucinations and illusions, but patients become uncoordinated and have tremulousness or tremors that essentially prevent them from being combative and aggressive. Instead, the patient would be more likely to be described as overwhelmed uh, by the uh, distortion in their sensorium, right? So people on LSD are, are the ones who are characteristically mesmerized by oscillating colors and, and, and objects or start talking to inanimate objects, having deep conversations with the furniture, in other words. There's a great YouTube video on this. 
called Drinking Out of Cups. It's not necessarily safe for work. Uh, the person who was recorded making this video released a statement that he was not on acid while making the video and recorded it 100% sober. However, he is a splendid actor uh, because you are absolutely convinced that uh, he's on a psychedelic drug uh, during this video. At any rate, I'm not sure why that tangent's there. All right, D, cocaine. PCP and cocaine can cause tactile and visual hallucinations, uh, but cocaine has more of a euphoric effect from the increase in dopamine and does not cause people to be wildly combative and tolerant to pain. That is more characteristic of fencyclidine. E, marijuana. Symptoms of marijuana include dizziness, red eyes, pupillary dilation, dry mouth, and a slowed reaction time. Some people do get a little anxious on marijuana, uh, will act a little bit paranoid, but on board exams especially, and in real life, you're not going to see somebody intoxicated on marijuana alone being combative and requiring multiple police officers to hold him down. Such a person's more likely to just be chilling at home listening to some Pink Floyd or something like that. Take home for PCP intoxication is the mnemonic Red Danes. Rage, erythema, dilated pupils, delusions, amnesia, nystagmus, excitation, and dry skin. Got it, Red Danes. And finally, anytime you see rotatory nystagmus or a combative patient, think PCP intoxication. So there's a few psychiatry questions, and now the interview with Ned Morris. Welcome to the Match Smarter segment. Today we have Ned Morris, who is a psychiatry resident at Stanford. He completed his med school at Harvard, and interestingly enough, uh, seems like spends a lot of his time as a writer. Um, he's contributed to Scientific American, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune. I mean, you name it. His uh, article, Why I'm Becoming a Psychiatrist for the Wall Street Journal, is a great read, and I will post that to the webpage for this uh, podcast. Uh, Ned, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and offering your advice and take on uh, psychiatry as a specialty. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. All right. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons people choose which specialty they're going to go into. Why did you choose psychiatry? Uh, it's a great question. I think psychiatry is, um, you know, it's something I never thought I was going to go into initially uh, going into medical school. Um, I, I actually studied neurobiology uh, in college. Um, so I was absolutely fascinated by the nervous system and the brain, um, but I thought I was going to be closer to the neurology or neurosurgery side of it. And then when I got into medical, you know, into the hospitals and into, you know, patient care and medical school, I realized it was kind of the stories that were drawing me in with patients and, you know, the particular illnesses. And um, I talk about it a little bit in that piece you mentioned about becoming a psychiatrist in terms of the sheer burden of illness in the U.S. And I think something like 40 to 50 million Americans have mental illness in a given year. There's like 40,000 people commit suicide every year. I mean, it's one of the leading causes of death. Um, you know, you could go on and on. And so I think there are a lot of angles why people, you know, go into psychiatry, right? There's the storytelling aspect, um, which is really captivating. And then there's also the, the um, kind of burden of illness aspect as well. You know, you do mention in that piece uh, a little bit about the stigma of mental illness, not only for patients, uh, but also for medical students, um, for people who are in the field of psychiatry. Why do you think that's the case even nowadays? Um, stigma within medical school, like people going into the field of psychiatry? or Well, specifically the thought that, um, you know, you gave an example in, in that Wall Street Journal piece that does an orthopedic surgeon have to explain why become an orthopedic surgeon? Do people ask them or, or offer to them? hey, ortho is treated just like any other department in the hospital, but they do say those things about psychiatry. And some people even, you know, aver that becoming a psychiatrist is almost like throwing away a medical education. And and I say that very tongue-in-cheek because my wife is a psychiatry resident. <laughs> no, no, yeah, I, I, I totally know what you mean. I, yeah, I went through all of that when I was applying. Um, I think, yeah, it's really interesting as a somebody in the medical field, you definitely want to 
stand up against mental health stigma and be like a voice for people who might not have one, et cetera. But yeah, it's pretty scary when you come across some of that stigma within the medical community as well. Um, and I think it comes from multiple things. You know, there's obviously historical precedent uh, against uh, psychiatry, whether that be, you know, medical students uh, affiliating it with Freud or some of these, you know, outdated notions. I, I think, you know, to even popular presentations of what the field is like, you know, um, you know, you open the New Yorker and ha half the cartoons are someone sitting on a psychoanalyst couch, right? Whereas psychoanalysis is, you know, basically gone in most of the country. Like, it's not really how psychiatric practice is. Um, you know, just the other day, I was uh, filling up gas and I was wearing scrubs and someone just happened to say like, oh, are you like a surgeon or a OBGYN? And I said like, no, psychiatrist. And they kind of looked at me like, huh? Because I was wearing scrubs and it's like not your typical thing that you would think about, right? Most people think about somebody in like a sweater sitting by a couch, you know? Definitely with patches on, on the elbows as well. Maybe like yeah. a, you know, <laughs> yeah, like a yeah, sport exactly. coat. And I also think there are certain parts in medical school that reinforce some of that right and so you don't get to see the full aspects of psychiatry when you're in medical school because one it's, it's really difficult right to be sitting in an outpatient setting where it's you know sometimes very private and patients might not want to have medical students there and then um, other times people only do their rotation in um, an inpatient locked psychiatric unit which is the equivalent of you know doing intensive care you know an intensive care unit and then saying I, I never want to do medicine I don't want to do primary care which have nothing to do with each other right um, so I think there are multiple factors you know for from public stigma to also the experience of what it's like to see psychiatry in medical school. So do you think, though, that things are improving? Yeah, I, do. I, I think there are a couple of things. You know, there are a lot of different trends happening right now. I, I'm hopeful to say that mental health stigma in general is improving. I think, um, you know, there are some studies showing people are more accepting these days uh, of having family members or spouses or friends who have depression or schizophrenia, and people are generally more likely to affiliate those uh you know, illnesses with biological, neurobiological causes rather than like character flaws. And I think that's important. Um, you know, at the same time, though, you know, we have massive shortages in terms of mental health providers, right? And so even though we've also made these strides in terms of mental health stigma, people, you know, seeking care, you know, mental health parity under the, you know, Affordable Care Act and other legislation, um, a lot of people are still pretty afraid to speak up. A lot of people are really terrified to get the care that they need. Um, and so I think that shows us there's obviously more to be done. Yeah, and actually we, we addressed that in a podcast uh, interview with uh, Pamela Weibel um, yeah, yeah, not I heard too that. long ago. Um and, you know, she echoed some of those same sentiments. I, um, I think as a specialty, though, psychiatry the past couple years, as far as match results go, seems to be doing pretty well, getting more competitive. Yeah, so there's, there's kind of this, like, flip trend going on right now where a couple studies have actually come out from, like, I think, two, like, early 2000s, like, 2004 or something around, like, 2003 up until, like, 2012, 2013, showing that the number of psychiatrists has actually fallen in the U.S. So this is for the whole psychiatric pool. Um, and so the U.S. population has increased by, you know, X number of percent. The number of total doctors has increased, whereas the number of psychiatrists has actually fallen, which is, like, very bad news. Um, the number of psychiatrists like the mean age is something in the mid 60s now um so all of that's obviously very concerning right and even there were falling people applying into psychiatry and there were programs that weren't matching as recently as like four or five years ago um but i have seen some of the more recent data in the last couple of years and it does look like there might you know be some sort of rebound where people yeah they are more interested they're more applying and who knows whether or not that's part of you know legislation where there's more mental health parity mental health stigma or people are saying hey look, there's a shortage in this field. They need, you know, people to be doing that. And this is a great time to get into the field, which I, I also take that perspective as well. Because if there are people who are the mean age of 66 or whatever, then that means, you know, the people coming up now are really going to be taking the reins of the field. Yeah. And I mean, I think psychiatry is fascinating. I, I'm in the military. And as far as match goes, you, you in the military will get a primary, uh, especially match, but you can also elect to have a secondary choice of that particular especially doesn't doesn't fill or, or rather um, you don't match to that one um i picked psychiatry and about three or four days prior to submitting my application to the match uh, for the military um, i was torn i still couldn't decide psych or or ob um, <laughs> and it 
2 or 3 a.m. a lot of nights, I also think that. <laughs> why, why, yeah. didn't, why didn't I choose psychiatry? But, I mean, the the specialty is fascinating. But I do remember having a lot of, personally, um, you know, struggles with that question of, of why psychiatry over OBGYN. And mm-hmm. I personally answered that by a love for being in the operating room. Um, but let's say you have a third-year medical student now. They went through their psych rotation. They loved it. Um, and they love something else, or they always plan to go on to something else, and they love it equally as well. What argument would you give them to sway them towards your specialty? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I don't... I obviously want to recruit as many people as possible into psychiatry because I think it's a, it's a fantastic field. You know, we can do a lot of great things for patients. But um, no, I mean, ton, tons of medical students go through this this very process of saying, "Oh my goodness, I'm between these multiple fields, and what you know, what should I choose?" And I, I do ultimately, you know, I, I will obviously put out those same arguments I said earlier of you know the vast need of you know forty thousand suicides a year, you know, millions of people with mental illness. This is the time really to be getting into the field, and it's you know, um, you know, so many advances are being made, whether it's with the brain initiative um, or you know new treatment methods, and um, it's really a pretty exciting time. But you know, just you know, for the person sitting in front of you and they're saying, "Hey, I don't know how to decide between these fields. Help me." you know, taking off the hat of I'm going to pitch you for psychiatry, just saying, hey, what should, you know, everybody do when they're between these is, you know, yeah, I I think there is a a role for going with your gut on this. You know, obviously, we want to be scientific, evidence-based, all that. But, you know, as you just mentioned, right, like at the end of the day, you have to be happy what you're doing. And so I think, you know, thinking about what makes you happy when you wake up every day and, you know, go to work. And so the thought of, you know, going to the OR, you know, makes you say like, oh, wow, that's, I really want to get out of bed, you know, and I really want to, you know, run to the OR and see these extra cases. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty important. And that should give you a, a clue versus if you're like, um, you know, what happened to me is I had never thought that I'd be interested in psychiatry, but as a third year, um, I found myself, you know, really drawn to patients' charts if, you know, they were suffering from bipolar disorder or, you know, a patient came in with a prior suicide attempt. You know, those are things that just captivated me and um, that really tipped me towards the balance. And so I think most medical students, as they go through their different, um, you know, clinical experiences, rotations, things like that, you know, pay attention to those things that, like, draw you to patients' charts or to patients' cases. And I think that'll be the most, help, you know, telling sign moving forward. Yeah, I think that's good advice. So what about the nitty gritty of residency? So applying to psychiatry, uh, what do you think makes somebody stand out um, as a psychiatry residency applicant? Um, there's, yeah, many, many different factors, right? And so there, there's actually, um, you know, I'm, your listeners might already know this, but the, uh, na- the match program, the National Resident Matching Program, they have these annual surveys they actually send out to program directors. Um, and I, th- they actually pretty recently released their t- uh, results for the 2016 survey, I'm pretty sure. And so what's really interesting is if you look at how they phrase those surveys, um, they split it into two different sections. Like, you know, how do programs decide picking someone to interview? And then how do you decide how to rank someone, right? And so those are kind of two different processes to think about if people are applying and so um and deciding to interview someone uh, you know most of the frequently cited things are like the personal statement you know your usmle scores which is horrible as it is to say but yeah those you know three digit scores matter you know your letters of recommendation obviously getting people who know you who can you know say great things a a funny one that is in psychiatry as well as you know a quote perceived commitment to the field um and i think psychiatry is particularly sensitive to this aspect because as you mentioned i think a lot of people in the past when it's been a less competitive specialty have actually listed it as like a backup option or, Hey, like if, you know, radiation oncology or one of these, you know, super specialized, you know, programs doesn't work out, I can always match into psychiatry. And I think, you know, programs are aware of that, right? Like if somebody comes in and, you know, they have six research experiences in one field and they can't stop talking about that. And then you say, Oh, like, why do you want to come to psychiatry? And they kind of shrug. That kind of gives a hint like, okay, well, why, you know, why should this person be in our program if they're just kind of listing it as a backup. And you see after people get interviewed in terms of making the decision to rank people, that's when how the interview day goes is basically the most important. And so someone when I was in medical school actually once told me that, you know, if you're invited to interview at a program, you're for the most part, you can probably do a good job in that program. Like you're, you're basically competent at the level where you could compete, you could be in that program, you could care for patients. But really, once you get there for the interview, you know, 
after you've crossed that bar with the rest of the people, the question is, do you fit into the program, right? And whether you like them back, because it's not just, are they accepting you? It's also like, hey, do you like this program too? And so I think that's an important thing to think about is, you know, applying for the interview, right, is like, you know, the academic stuff and, you know, letters and all that. But then once you're at the interview, it's really, you know, how are you interacting with the faculty? How the interviews go? Do you like the you know place? Is it a good fit for both of you? And, you know, that's kind of the key things to keep in mind. Talking about that just in general, as as a whole, psychiatry doesn't apply as strong of a weight to board scores, right, as a whole, compared to something like RADONC or, or ortho or, or dermatology. So obviously, in general, you know, board scores are going to be important, and it, it will depend on exactly, you know, where you want to match, you know, a top 10 program in any specialty, you're going to have to have a stellar application all around. But besides the things that do in general apply, the commitment to the specialty you mentioned is maybe a more unique thing in, in psychiatry versus other specialties. How would somebody demonstrate that in, in like an excellent way? How would they really convince a program that they need to accept and they need to train them as a psychiatrist because they are going to be an advocate for patients for the field and uh, be a successful um, practicing psychiatrist? No, it's an awesome question. I, I think the personal statement's obviously one part. In, you know, psychiatry is a very narrative field, right? Where, you know, we've all been in the experience of opening up patients' charts in the hospital and, you know, see the psychiatry notes, the one that's 10 pages long. Um, so I think people really do pay t- attention to personal statements. You know, I, I obviously haven't uh, interviewed in other fields or whatever, but I, I think we do pay a lot of attention in psychiatry. But I think you bring up a great point of what sometimes applicants forget about is thinking in terms of next steps in the future. And that can be a big key part of how programs look at people. And so if you show up to an interview and they say, why, you know, why do you want to go into psychiatry? And you say, oh, I was in the psychiatry club and I really liked my class. It's like, okay, um, you know, sure, that could be an explanation. But I think it's much more compelling if you have a vision for the future and saying, rather than you know, this is what I did and this is why you should let me in. It's saying, hey, here's why, you know, this residency program is a great fit for me and this is how it's going to help me achieve my goals moving forward. And so if you say, look, I, you know, I really do dream of being like an advocate for mental health stigma or you say against mental health stigma or you say, hey, I want to, you know, do research into the brain and work under the brain initiative or whatever. And, you know, I know your program has X, Y, and Z and that's the perfect fit for me that's going to allow me to accomplish those dreams. That's like, oh, wow, that's a compelling reason why I'm like, hey, we should you know, work with this person, right? So in particular, as an example, what did you say when you were asked that question on the interview trail? You know, I obviously did some, you know, reflection going under the interview trail of, hey, what, you know, what are the major reasons why I'm applying into psychiatry versus other ones? And so I could, you know, you give the answers of storytelling and all of these things and, you know, um, you know, why I'm drawn to patients' charts. Um, but yeah, what did I say in terms of moving forward in the future is I had done some, you know, writing in medical school and I thought, hey, you know, there's really, a, you know, an ongoing battle against the stigma of mental health. And I think sometimes in the medical community, we, uh, can kind of get stuck within our own academic journals that nobody's really <laughs> engaging with outside the medical community and isn't having as much impact. And I thought, yeah, maybe if, you know, I keep writing or, you know, doing that in popular media or blogs or on newspapers or whatever, maybe that could be a way to make a difference. Um, and I thought psychiatry is really a just captivating field where I'd be able to do that. And so, yeah, that was one way in which I hoped to kind of demonstrate my commitment to it. Well, I mean, you're in good company. I can think of a, a few psychiatrists turned writers. Uh, one of my favorites, Walker Percy, was a novelist um, who trained in, in New York and then got tuberculosis, got very ill and didn't continue um, or complete his training. But he became a, a novelist and writes a lot of uh, novels with uh, psychiatrists as the protagonist, I guess you'd say, or, <laughs> you know, kind of depends on the perspective. But um people who wrestle with, uh, you know, the, the big questions of life. And yeah, psychiatrists make good writers um, in, in general. That's, that's why the notes are so long. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can fit the mold of being a good writer, but yeah, I do, I do write long notes, so that fits to that stereotype. <laughs> well, that's at least one part. How did you choose which programs to rank? That's the, uh, you know, the probably the most difficult question for everybody, right? Is like, you know, you come down to the rank list and um, it's tough, right? I I think there are a few factors, obviously depending on, you know, listeners as to what specialty they're applying into. It's a very different, you know, I had classmates who um, 
let's say they had the exact same grades. They're coming out of Harvard. They're amazing people, but one of them's applying into, um, you know, radiation oncology. One of them's applying into pediatrics. You know, the, the former is applying to, you know, 60 programs. The latter is applying to, you know, 10 or 15 or something. And so, you know, one big part will be the specialty. But, you know, when it comes down to ranking, again, there's the, the gut feeling type thing. How did you feel on the interview day? Did you like the people you interacted with? The big part is, you know, pay attention to who else you're interviewing with. There's a strong chance you're going to be next three, four, five, seven years going to be with those people, you know? So um, that's something to pay attention to. But, you know, I, I think it's overwhelmingly important in the rank process too to think about family and geography as well because you know that obviously makes a difference um you know applying to college applying to medical school people think hey you know you think about your family but some people also say hey i want to i just want to get out of here and i want to go to another state right whereas it's important to think about you know residency because people really do get to that age where you're you know getting married or people are having children and it's really kind of for a lot of people, the time when you'll probably start settling down. And so, you know, it's something to think about because, you know, obviously people do move after residency and, you know, into fellowship and all of that. But a lot of people do stay where they, where they train. They've, you know, formed those professional connections. They've laid down roots. And so I think that's a strong thing to think about is, you know, where your, you know, family is or where you want to be long term. And, um, you know, whether you, you know, you still do have those options to leave at the end of residency, but recognizing that it'll be difficult because there will be job options there and you'll know people and you'll have those roots laid down. Is there anything else you think that would be um, very good to cover for psychiatry in particular? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's easy once you're on the other side to be like, oh, don't worry about, you know, applying and everything's <laughs> yeah. going to be fine, but yep. <laughs> it's stressful, right? Going through it. And I think, um, you know, that's always a, a message from definitely somebody who's training is for, you know, people to take care of themselves too, right? Like you're going through this, you know, super intense, stressful process. You're traveling across the country. You're spending all this money interviewing and, you know, to really, you know, take a step back at the end of the day and think about a couple of things. You know, one, it's the end of medical school. It's really exciting and, you know, should be kind of proud of what you've accomplished. And then two, yeah, to make sure to care for yourself. Fourth year is generally a time with more flexibility in which you can kind of take electives you want to take and spend more time taking care of yourself. So I, you know, really recommend people take advantage of that. Fair enough. All right. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. All right. You have a good one. The music for today's show is thanks to The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. The song is I Can Be Afraid of Anything Off Harmlessness. You can follow them on Twitter at TWIABP. That's The World is a Beautiful Place. Or check out their website, theworldisabeautifulplace.com. Thanks, guys, for letting us use the tune and keep making great music. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.